This is a very serious podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Splank Nick's podcast. I'm Claire T. Walker. I am an independent author, and I am joined by my co-host, Hannah Kubiak. Hello, I'm Hannah Kubiak. I am a... Um, independent author, I'm a theater professional, and I am Claire's daughter. Today, Hannah and I had a little excursion. Mm-hmm. We went to the movies, and we saw the movie adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, Dune. This is the 2021 Denis Villeneuve version, mm-hmm. a movie adaptation of Dune, and we're going to talk about it um, in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome to Splanknicks, the Society for the Preservation of Literature, the Arts, Numinosity, Culture, Humor, (laughs) Nerdiness, Inspiration, Creativity, and Storytelling. Okay, Hannah, that was epic. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that movie. Good. I'm glad you did. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you have seen it twice. That was my first time that I've seen it. Yes. This movie was a long time coming. Frank Herbert's novel in 1965, people have been sort of waiting for a movie, and they've made a a couple of attempts at adapting this to the the screen. Mm -hmm. Both of those adaptations were considered pretty epic failures. Mm -hmm. But this one, I think, worked quite well it's, it's gotten pretty good reviews i think overall and yeah. most people seem to have enjoyed it i think with good reasons very very well done mm. the movie uh, the book rather i should say dune was considered unfilmable that was the phrase used to describe it much in the same way as lord of the rings was considered unfilmable and many other movies that were unfilmable um until we got this nice technology that was my first impression of it what was your you've seen it twice now mm-hmm I thought it was great. I thought they got, there were a lot of things in it that I was kind of wondering how they were going to do it, and it turned out fine, I thought. The Gamjabar was so eerie. I think mostly what sold the fact that the Gamjabar is such a big deal and it's so dangerous was um, the actress who played Jessica did a really good job with that, just like. Well, because yeah. the because the Reverend Mother is not really reacting to stuff. Paul doesn't know what's going on for most of it, and, but Jessica knows, and she's terrified. And it's really spooky and eerie because it's the middle of the night. There's no one around, and and then they just leave him in this room with this <clears throat> creepy old woman. That is just such an awesome beginning to the book. Is the first chapter in the book, but that scene actually didn't take place until like half an hour in to the movie. They did a little bit more setup. Um, they sort of introduced characters first and built up to that, built relationships a little bit. Whereas in the in the book, we kind of get thrown into the Gomjabar at the beginning. I agree. The that was a creepy scene, and I really uh, enjoyed the performance of the actress who played Jessica because, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, she was freaking out. Mm-hmm. She knew that this could be the end. That he could die. Yeah, he could die right here. But Paul rose to the occasion, and that was a good test of him, too, because what we've seen up until that point Mm -hmm. is kind of a scrawny kid, unsure of himself. He wasn't able to do the voice very well on Jessica. You can tell he's still learning. Mm. 
Uh, but they did a really good job, I think, like you said, of setting up mm-hmm. the household and the situation and who these people are and who these people are to each other. Yeah, and we got to see Paul and his father a little bit. That was an amazing scene. I loved that scene so much because they were talking about like Paul's responsibilities and how he's going to be the heir to... He's going to be the, the next Duke. He has a lot of responsibility. And he was reluctant to answer a call and... Leto said, well, even if you don't answer the call, you'll still be everything I ever needed to be, my son. Yeah. Like, well, you remember what I said <laughs> to you in that, that moment? At that moment in the movie theater, yeah. I, I leaned over to you, and what did I say? And you're like, he's so awesome. I said, I love him. Hell, yeah. He is so awesome. Yeah. Played and, by Oscar Isaac, of course. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, mm-hmm. remember we, we talked about this as we were leaving the theater. Yeah. The last time I entered a movie theater to see a movie mm-hmm. was also to see a movie with Oscar Isaac in it. Right. It yeah. was the, the Rise of Skywalker, Rise of Skywalker <laughs> in December of 2019. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I love that uh, that scene, and mm-hmm. it really set up a good storyteller will make the audience or the reader fall in love with a character mm-hmm. who is going to die heroically, especially, yeah, or tragically. You want us? I mean, and and in the book, in the book he's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Lito. I love him so much. He's noble. Mm-hmm. He is good. He is truly a good person. He is very smart. He knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. He knows they have been sent to Dune as to be basically a political gambit by the Emperor. Yeah. <clears throat> and he also knows that they've been kind of set up to fail. Almost. Yeah. But he's got a plan. Yeah. And he knows, and he sent some, some men ahead to figure out what's going on with the Fremen, the native culture that live on this planet, and he knows yeah. something... Early on in the movie, he knows something that the Emperor doesn't know, which is that there are millions of Fremen on this planet, mm-hmm. not just, you know, 50,000. And again, you remember we were talking about it during Watership Down, about leadership? Yeah. And the difference mm-hmm. of leadership? Look at the difference Leto was. Yeah. He was a leader of vision, imagination. Like, he, he had the foresight to send Duncan Idaho into the planet ahead of time mm-hmm. to kind of scout it out. Yeah. Figure out these Fremen, mm-hmm. because he knew what he was going to need to make an alliance with the Fremen. Yeah, and and what Duncan because the Fremen know how to survive on the planet, and, and, and what Duncan discovered is that that there's a lot more going on on Arrakis than Baron Harkonnen ever imagined. They thought mm-hmm. there were only fifty thousand Fremen on the uh, planet. Yeah, it just it turns out there's millions. Yeah, and and un, and only a man of Duke Leto's vision mm-hmm. could figure that out. The Harkonnens were just tyrants. Yeah, they were they, just there to, to take everything out that they could. Yeah, they were just there to harvest spice and harvest spice and make a lot of money. And they weren't thinking about the people at all, which is just another of those great things about Duke Leto. He valued people over product. Mm. So, like, when they go out to... um, see the spice fields and see how it works the the worm is coming to get the uh, spice harvester and the carry-all malfunctions yeah and he's like how many men are on there and they say there's 21 he's like all right well we can take we can we can make them fit into my ships and they're sort of reluctant to go because spice is really expensive and the, so the the harvesters were kind of just like well no we've got so much spice here and he just said damn the spice get on the ships and basically he got all the men out and he let the harvester get get eaten by the worm, which not only the spice, but also the equipment. Yeah. But he got the people out, and that was what was important to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that also was sort of how he saw the value in the Fremen. Yeah. So he would see like he would see the value in people. 
and respected them. Yeah, asked, yeah, that, yeah and asked <clears throat> for their opinions also. Mm-hmm. You know? That conversation with Stilgar, the Fremen leader who mm-hmm. showed up, he said, I will show respect to any man who, you know, shows me the same Mm-hmm. Same honor and respect. It's the same to and, me. Yeah. And he, and he deferred to um, Duncan Idaho, who knew what the spitting on the table meant. Mm. I mean, they were gonna they were gonna take him out for showing yeah. disrespect to the Duke, but um, but Duncan's like hold, and, and Duke Leto's like okay, mm-hmm. what's what's this all about? And <clears throat> yeah. Duncan explained what that that ceremonial spitting on the table means. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sharing the, the body's water. You know, yep. the water is the most precious thing on that planet, other than the spice. Yep. And then the other thing about that I liked about Leto is he was he was a good father. I mean, mm-hmm. by that that scene with his son. He was a good father. Yeah. And he was a good husband. Yeah. And he had a lot of courage. He had immense courage. Uh huh. He knew he was there, set up to fail. Mm-hmm. And he get, but he's like, okay, we're gonna try and figure out a way to work this. Mm-hmm. But then when it it wasn't working, and uh, he came to spoiler alert, he came to a rather rapid and and bad end. Mm-hmm. But he he did what he needed to do to try to make the best of it. You know, he got the the poison tooth from yeah from uh, Doctor yeah. Huey. Yeah, he's only in like. Mm-hmm quarter of the book and he's one of the he's one of the most important characters actually because you know he is he's he's paul's father he mm-hmm. he has molded him into the man that he is mm-hmm. and paul has a lot of still um a long way to go he's mostly potential at this point in yep. the story but he's got a long way to go but you can tell that that the regard and the affection the just the regard that he shows for paul's mm-hmm feelings basically and just how yeah. you know he, he knows he's hesitant he shared the story about he how he was hesitant also mm-hmm. and um and there's that's a, that was a beautiful moment of connection between father and son there and and, mm-hmm. and it really yeah was so important for for paul's character mm-hmm. let's talk about the plot a little bit okay one of the things that made the previous film adaptations or i should say screen adaptations of this book probably unsuccessful was that it was really really hard to follow the plot yep one of the reasons, another reason this book is considered unfilmable is because so much stuff takes place in the characters' heads. Yeah, it's kind of like Ender's Game in that respect. It's just so cerebral. Yeah. And there's really nothing visually going on, but it's just the character <clears throat> thinking about stuff. There's another scene in there that's it's one of the best scenes in the book, mm-hmm. but mostly unfilmable because it's the it's this ceremonial dinner that's taking place do you remember oh gosh yeah and they're all speaking in coded language and every time someone utters an, a line of dialogue that's in some sort of the family code yeah they're actually having a sub conversation and the sub conversation is translated by herbert frank yeah. herbert in the text and you see he said something and that sounded totally innocuous to everyone at the table mm-hmm. but but the family members sat there and went what you know they, they yeah. could tell something horrendous that 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 the duke had just said or something very important well that's unfilmable Mm -hmm. but they did a really good job adapting it they gave him a secret hand language remember that right yes that was cool because anytime that then that would have been one of those thought things in the Mm -hmm. book that would like start almost like telepathically or say some sort of coded thing to to each Mm -hmm. other but in the movie they did this special hand language and that i thought Mm -hmm. was really good really good visual way of doing it yeah but most of the people who I've talked to and who you've talked to who have watched this movie having not read the book said they could follow everything completely. Yeah. Because what the filmmakers did and the screenwriters did is they they took the plot with it's very political, there's lots of mm-hmm. intrigue, there's lots of, you know, infighting among all these houses and yep. the emperor. But what they did is they stripped it down to the very essentials. Yeah. Which fits completely because this is a story about the desert. Yeah. And in the desert Everything is stripped down to the essentials. Yeah. The bare minimum. Yeah, it's a very barren landscape. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it's also a very bare bones, but powerful plot. Mm. Because this is an empire we're talking about, and these are two main houses. And the empire has not been pleased with, with the, the, the rise in power of the Atreides, so he sets them into, into Arrakis uh-huh. so that they will fail. Right. But, but one of the things that was remarkable, and even Lido even says this, he, he says, I thought we would have more time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like they're there for a couple of days, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, all the all yeah. the troops come down, and they just destroy the place, and they they take the duke, and they mm-hmm. kill him, and they they capture uh, Paul and Jessica, fly him off into the desert, intending to just mm-hmm. just throw them overboard and have them die in the desert. Yeah, lots of political intrigue with lots of details that was frankly confusing in the book. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, when I was a youngster and I read it, I kind of glossed over that. I didn't really get it all. Yeah, in fact, it was hard for me on my first reading of this book to figure out what was going on. Well, yeah. they made it um, very, very crystal clear in the in the movie what exactly is going on. What else is... Yeah, what else did you have on your... Me? Your list of reactions to the oh, movie. Oh, well, the settings were really cool because Caladan was the planet that they lived on before. It was all air and sea power. Like, they lived... It looked like Ireland to me, mm-hmm. kind of. Like, like, there were cliffs, there was the sea, there was... Just like, you know, like mist and the fog and it was raining all the time. It was just lush. So much water, mm. yeah. And um, and then they get to Arrakis and there's no water. It's completely different. Like Kaladin had all these cool colors, blues and greens and slate grays. and But in Arrakis, there was a lot of, it was just like, like stark, bright dry sand, no water, just like the merciless sun. Everything was brown. down. Everything was brown and sand color. Yeah. And yeah, so just the, the settings were cool. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an interesting moment as they were getting ready to leave. They were basically, uh, this was these shots of Paul just kind of walking the grounds mm-hmm. of Caladan for the last time, and you could see them packing up crates and getting ready to go. Mm-hmm. And Paul walked up to the to a little sort of, it looked like it might maybe a tidal pool of some kind. Mm-hmm. And there was sand mm-hmm. beneath the surface of the water. Mm-hmm. And Paul sort of stuck his hand in there mm-hmm. and just just kind of felt the water. But there was sand in there also. I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting, that, that yeah. sand and water. I noticed that the second time I watched it was like, first of all, there's the gom jabar, put your hand in the box, which he does. Um, and then later he's like walking around the, walking around the planet and like puts his hand in the water and stuff. And then on the planet, he was like picking up the sand and yeah, like you can see the spice run, like the spice running through his fingers and everything. Um, let me just let me just read you this. I read a review okay. uh, of the movie. Um, I'll I'll link to this uh, this review in the mm-hmm. show notes. But he described the tone, the tone of this movie, yeah, as solemn, portentous, dense with political and economic themes and largely lacking in human warmth or humor. Now, portentous mm. doesn't mean pretentious. Portentous means big, like important. Something, something portentous, like something big is looming. Yeah, yeah, big and looming. Um, largely lacking in human warmth or humor. I would say something big and looming was, was there, definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that solemn, like portentous. That, that looming uh, sandworm in that one. Everything was looming. Those yeah. ships, everything was huge. Yeah. Just the scale of everything was, yeah. was just immense. So, yeah, definitely. And the Baron floating in the sky was immense. <laughs> yeah, he was immense. Um, and the ships flo- were immense. Um, the desert was immense. The, the yeah, storm, like the wall. Expanses, of, yeah. yeah. Just, yeah, very uh, epic in its scale. 
But what did you think of this line, largely lacking in human warmth or humor? I don't think it was lacking in warmth or humor. Like there was, well, I mean, there was some humor at the beginning and then it got a little bit more solemn, but um, there was, there was enough and the, like the Mm -hmm. human emotion there, it was there. There were connections that you saw, but I think just because there was so much in this story where people people have like a public face that they put on they're they're meeting a messenger who's giving them their orders to go to Arrakis and it's this big ceremony you got to just you got to stand there and you know look portentous look proper <laughs> and everything um so there was a lot of you know like keeping up appearances looking proper looking as we should i think that that maybe is where that reviewer is coming from. Okay. I think behind the scenes, though, there is, a, there is definitely uh, warmth. I agree. There was. I, I think that the family dynamic and the dynamic of the close inner circle of the Duke, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho mm-hmm. and um, Lito, Jessica, and Paul were very tight-knit unit, and there was warmth there, and there was mm-hmm. humor there. Yeah. Um, and there was, and you know, as we talked about, Jessica displayed a lot of emotion when she was basically in fear for Paul's life mm-hmm. during his encounter with the Bene Gesserit uh, mm-hmm. Reverend Mother. So I think at the beginning of, of the story, there was a lot of that warmth and, mm-hmm. and, and humor. And the book was similar. And I, my impression on my latest reading, especially of the book, is the more I read it, the more distance I felt from the hero, especially from Paul. Mm-hmm. And... In also in this book, or in the movie, something similar was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to point to, in particular, the scene that is almost, it's very near the end of the, end of the movie, mm-hmm. where he has his fight to the death with that uh, Fremen yeah. named uh, Jameis. Paul had never fought to the death before. No. And notice how they, they set it up very well that Paul was skilled with this knife. Yeah. Because he had a scene earlier with Gurney, uh, yeah, with Gurney Halleck, and Paul, and he wants to come in and fight him, you know, have some training. And Paul's like, I'm not in the mood, and and Gurney was like, uh, Excuse me, it doesn't and, matter. And went after him. It doesn't matter if you're in the mood or not. Yeah, you, know, you, you come, you fight when the moment uh, presents itself. Yeah. But anyway, so you know, so we knew that we know that Paul is very skilled with with a blade, mm-hmm. and so he has this knife fight with uh, Jameis, this Fremen tribesman who's got his backup about everything right from the beginning yeah and he has no idea he has no idea how good paul is he yeah. thinks he's just this scrawny he's a kid who he's just gonna sidestep yeah. once and then and then and then gut him yeah. don't uh, don't underestimate those scrawny people mm-hmm. they'll they'll uh so he so there's he, a wiry strength to them <laughs> yeah so james discovers quickly that paul knows what he's doing with a blade mm-hmm. you have some skill with a blade oh gosh how did you know i was about to say that oh <laughs> Because our minds are linked. Yes. Our, our minds are one. Our minds are one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, so he so he realizes that this kid knows how to fight. I might actually be in real trouble here. Mm-hmm. And don't you know it? Jameis, he loses this fight, and he yeah. gets one knife strike to probably the kidney, it looks like, it where, like where it Paul struck him. And he bleeds out. Mm-hmm. In the book, Paul weeps at this point. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Fremen are astonished because they don't, they have trained their their people. You do not do that. Oh, because it waits a waste. It of wastes moisture. the water. You do not cry. Yeah. 
And they are astonished that he does this display of emotion. First of all, mm-hmm. that he is weeping for a person who would have just as soon killed him. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that, that kind of builds some yeah, some nice rapport, I think, with, with the reader also. You know, yeah. when you see this, this boy who has got this very skill, he's got a, lot, he's got a tender heart still. Mm-hmm. But by this point in the movie, Paul has, like, I think, put his walls up. Yeah. He doesn't, he's done weeping. After he realized what was going on, like lashed out at Jessica when they were in the tent or whatever. After that, it was just yeah, like the walls are up. Face. Just like, well, yep, got to do this stuff now. I don't have time for feelings. And yeah, when um, after he killed Jameis and he's just walking away, it was just like like a sense of like numbness almost yeah. to it. Yeah, and that is at the point when 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 Paul, as he uh, comes into his sense of who he is, this sort of messianic aspect of his of his character and of his destiny, he starts to be less likable to me in the book, and that emotional flatness really mm-hmm. starts to make itself known to me as a reader of the book. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what I noticed on my, on my most recent read-through of the book, with, which was last year. Mm-hmm. And I got that sense at the end of this movie also. But this is one of the reasons why Dune could have been so much better if we had been able to, if Paul had been able to stay closer to his, you know, his tender boy's yeah. heart, you know, as he grew into yeah. his adult self and, and, and started to walk into his destiny. Right. If he had managed to catch, you know, still remain, retain that, that sort of core of tenderness that he had, mm-hmm. he might have been a more likable character in the end. Because by the end of the book, he's not as likable as he was yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, like he hears that the siege has been been attacked and that his young son had been killed and he's just like yeah okay yeah (laughs) yeah he was very emotionally flat about that obviously we haven't gotten to that part because we're that was just part one of the book the movie covered only halfway through the book ish yeah so um so i it'd be interesting to see if they decide to you know reconnect paul to this this sort of you know uh tender center and the actor who plays Paul, will, if they did, will have no problem pulling that off. And no, he's got the chops. Yeah. I mean, he's got an immense range yeah. of emotion. Um, this this actor, all the actors are really good, really mm-hmm. well well cast. Yeah, um, yeah, he he did he did pretty well. Yeah, I really dig the Fremen. The Fremen are, are so like the, yeah. the world building of Dune is always much it admired. Is. Yeah, you know, culture building and the world building. I have I, one more one more thing. What have you got? I have one more thing. It's about. It's about the Gom Jabbar again. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ask me about the Gom Jabbar. Yeah. We should have a button that says that too. What's in the box? Pain. What's in the box? Okay. Um. <laughs> what is your prediction for this fight? Pain. <laughs> oh my gosh. Rocky three, baby. Is <laughs> that Rocky three? Yeah, yeah, Rocky three. Yeah. <laughs> but I am more than happy to beat up on him some more. Mr. T. I yeah. love him. So, Gom Jabbar. The older woman, the Reverend Mother, uh, explains, You've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. Um, so she says, that's what, a, that's what a, a human would do. Surpass your instincts. Go past your fear. Let your fear run through you and over you, and then only you will remain. You know, like mm. the... 
Fear yeah, is the mind killer. That little killer. litany that they do to, to yeah. overcome their fear and panic. Yeah. yeah, fear is the mind killer. And I love, by the way, that connection between Paul and Jessica. Yeah. Because Jessica was outside mm-hmm. the room while this was going on, kind of freaking out. And, but mm-hmm. she started to recite the mind killer mm-hmm. sort of litany. And you can tell that Paul was doing the same thing. Because mm-hmm. he was like just writhing in immense pain from whatever this box was doing. But then it suddenly yeah. occurred to him he's going to do... Yeah, pain thing like and then you saw him nerves. just gain strength from it and yeah. by the end he's looking the the reverend mother in the eye saying just bring it on more yeah so fear is the little death that brings total obliteration there is a sort of parallel between the 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 the, the, the trap put your hand in the box and then the whole planet of arrakis and leto being sent there it's a you trap know, it's a trap and yeah. he knows it's a trap but he goes anyway. Yeah. And he knows that he's when like like he knows that he's going to die, but he waits. He has the poison in his tooth that the that Dr. Yue gave him. So a human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. So he's always there and he waits until the baron is there and then he um the baron thinks he's an animal in a trap, but he's a human. That's right. Very so, good. What did Leto say in the movie? It was hard to hear some of the whispered dialogue. Yeah, Do you I don't. What he said? I don't know. I was trying to figure it out too because I didn't hear him last time either. Oh, okay. Um, we should try to find out what he said I'll, because I'll it was, it was it his last words, you know. And maybe they maybe they would help us make yeah. if the movie maker saw this connection also that yeah. he yeah Leto's basically lying in wait yeah. for this Baron to come close enough to bite the tooth and kill him yeah. yeah he didn't know that he had this magic um suspenser system that would shoot mm-hmm. him up to the ceiling though and yeah save him unfortunately That's so oh, oh bothers me that he yeah. he survived um but yeah remove a threat to his kind so yeah, yeah just very good he basically knew I'm not going to make it out of here alive but but I'll pave the way for Paul at least yeah that just struck me when I was reading the book, actually, because there's there's something Paul in is in his father's like uh, council chambers or whatever, watching him, and he, Leto's pacing the room, and Paul thinks like an animal in a cage. Oh yeah. Um, uh-huh. mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that Arrakis was Leto's Gomjabar. Mm-hmm. We sift people to see if they are human, like sand through a screen. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and uh, Leto was definitely uh, definitely sifted, and I think mm-hmm. he passed the test. He's an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing person. Well, if it's not obvious, um, we're big fans of uh, Duke Leto Atreides here. Yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> I think we spent maybe half Duke, of... Half the Duke of... Leto Atreides fan club here. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question, Hannah. Yeah. Is Dune science fiction? No. I agree. I don't think it's science fiction either. It's I think fantasy. it's epic fantasy. fantasy. It has some of the accoutrements... And some of the appearance and some of the uh, accessories of science fiction. It's got spaceships and it's got uh, little you know flying things and it's got mm-hmm. um, uh, blaster guns. Yeah. But I don't think this is science fiction. Yeah. And so you know when people put it on the list of the greatest science fiction novels of all time, I think they're mistaken. I think yeah. I've actually done that myself. Mm-hmm. It's certainly an epic fantasy and it belongs in that in that category. And it's certainly one of the best. I would say fantasy story, you know, novels, yeah, of all time. Well, so the yeah, the movie's a success. Yeah, uh, the book has been a success since 1965. Very, very good. And the movie, this is a very good adaptation. Highly recommended, both the book and the movie. Yes, they both have uh, their strengths. 
each an excellent telling of the story for its medium. Thumbs up from from both Splanknik's reviewers here. Yep. For so, whatever that uh, that whatever weight that carries with uh, with people at home. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for uh, joining us on this uh, little rambling conversation about uh, this is kind of like the talking about the movie after you've seen it. You know, a conversation, and Hannah and I just decided to record ours. So, yep. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will go and read the book and watch the movie. Um, meantime, everybody, take care. Yeah.